Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. J.B. Phillips once wrote, God may thunder his commands from Mount Sinai, and men may fear yet remain at heart exactly as they were before. But let a man once see his God down in the arena as a man, suffering, tempted, sweating, and agonized, finally dying a criminal's death. And he is a hard man indeed who is untouched. So I want to welcome you back to this little short series on Christ titled Lion and the Lamb. And uh, as you know, we're, we're taking a short break from our, our sermon series on Romans in order to spend some time to think about and to talk through an important foundational issue regarding the gospel, and, and that is the character and the nature of, of Christ. In other words, who is Jesus and why is that important? Because the truth is, who Jesus is is essential to our faith. As we talked about last week, Christ is the one who bridges the chasm between God and man. Christ literally is our hope. He is the one who saves us from our sin and the wrath of God. And He Himself is the one who reconciles us back into the relationship with God that we were all created for. And so, who Christ is in His character and nature is central to our faith and central to our identity in Christ. And it's because of that we must know and understand who Jesus is personally and intimately. Not just head knowledge, not just intellectually, but we must know Him really and sincerely and personally and and, and not only must we know Him, but we must be able to then trust Him and trust in the promises that He has made us to redeem us. We must believe and have faith in what He has done historically on our behalf. And last week we started in John chapter 1 and we spent time getting clear about the essential doctrines about the Christian faith, right? The, the doctrine especially the one that's central to the heart of our faith, and that is the fact that Jesus Himself is, is God. Jesus is the Word, as John says, and as such, He is eternal, uncreated, and the Creator of all things. And He is the very author of life, as John had revealed, which then helps us to understand that He is, in fact, Almighty God foundational to our understanding of Jesus and the gospel is the fact that Jesus himself is Yahweh. He is God. But as we talked about, the fact that even though that Jesus is God, Jesus is distinct from the Father. Jesus, the Son, is not the Father, and neither is He the Holy Spirit. Jesus is clearly God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, and foundational to our, our understanding of Christ is the truth that He, the, the truth of the triune nature of the Godhead. The confession of faith that we have puts it this way the Lord, our God, is one, the only living and true God. He is self existent and infinite in being in perfection. This divine an infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are infinite and without beginning, and therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet, these three are distinguished in several distinctive characteristics and personal relationship. In other words, there is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the truth that is essential to our faith, that Jesus is God the Son. And then last week we talked about how Christ the Son came into the world and took on a full human nature and became a man. He came into the world to be with us. And that's what we're going to spend some time on talking about today. What does that mean for us? And the first thing I want you to notice is what John says of this in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You see, when we oftentimes when we read through the narratives, the gospel narratives, uh, and you move really from one story to the next, especially if you become familiar and kind of understand kind of like the way that the stories flow, it's easy to really overlook some of the theological details that are really important about who Jesus is, especially when things tend to be mentioned in passing as the story proceeds. The truth is, it's really easy for us to identify all the big details about Jesus, like Jesus being God and Jesus doing miracles and Jesus declaring himself king as he rides into Jerusalem later on in the gospel narrative in the triumphal entry. Right? The big details are obvious to see, but it's easy to overlook the small but important details about Jesus, especially the details about what it means for him to be a man. Right? But it's important that we actually notice them because as we talked about last week, it's important that we acknowledge and understand that Jesus not only has a full divine nature, he took upon himself a full human nature. When he came into the world, he became fully, truly man. And this is critical for us because Jesus is not simply God, right, with a body that he wears like a costume. His humanity is not some puppet that he animates. His body is not an avatar, right, that he, that he controls. Jesus is a full, he has a full human nature. And, and, and he became from that point forward into eternity, a man as well as God. And the person of Jesus is both a full divine nature and a full human nature. And again, our confession is helpful with this. In chapter 8, it reads, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus He was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant from, of Abraham, and David in fulfillment of scriptures, right? And then I want you to pay attention to this part here. Two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. I'm going to say that again. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. The point of that long paragraph is that Jesus as God became a man in all of its fullness and what it means to be human. And the thing that we need to acknowledge, right? And the thing is, is we, we acknowledge that at least intellectually, but I think there's a tendency in, in many of us to be dismissive of Jesus' human experience, his everyday human experience. I think we tend to overlook that because he's God. In fact, I've heard people say, well, Jesus did that because he was God. Right? Of course Jesus was able to do that. He's God. Of course Jesus could handle that. Of course Jesus did the right thing. Of course Jesus was selfless because he was God. But the thing that we need to open our hearts to is Jesus was also fully and completely human. He had a full human nature. He had a human brain. He had human blood. He had human lungs with a human heart. He had human hormones. And he had in his humanity real human limitations. Jesus in his humanity 
was, was very limited. Remember, he voluntarily, the scriptures tell us, emptied himself. Now understand, Jesus always was fully God and never lost divinity, right? But in his humanity, he lived a full human life with human limitations. And, and that's the detail we see in this text. Notice what John wrote. He says, he says, Jacob's well was there, but Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus, because of walking in the heat, was wearied to the point of needing to sit down and get a drink of water. Just let that sink in. Jesus was wore out. In fact, the, the word that, that, that's used here in the Greek means to be exhausted. It means to be depleted. It means to be physically have nothing left. It means to be absolutely tired. And this term is not ambiguous. And so the point that John is making is Jesus in his humanity physically was, was done. He had to stop. He was tired to the point of exhaustion. And, and as human beings ourselves, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to work so hard and to be so busy, to be completely wore out and have nothing left where you have to sit down, where you have to stop. It, it happens to me frequently. My wife reminds me all the time of this limitation. Now that I'm working two jobs as a pastor and a substitute English teacher, and now that I'm, I'm trying to finish my kitchen remodel, and now that BBS is upon us, and I'm trying to get to Carson's baseball games, and we're trying to visit people and check up on our church family, and with all that there is to do and all the things that are going on, there are just times I just get wore out. There are times that I just need to come home and just sit down and rest because I'm worried, and, and you've been there. Especially you moms. Especially you moms. I mean, I just, I don't have any idea how you do it. You clean up the house only to have one little kid running around right behind you, tearing it right back up. All right? And you're making breakfast and doing laundry and you go shopping. You got one kid on the hip and one in the basket and you're, you're dragging stuff around. And then you go from, from moment to moment you know, as you wake up, you're just going, going, going. And then the worst part for me is, mom, 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 mom. All day long, right? And then as, as they get older, then you're packing lunches and there's parent-teacher conferences and there's honor roll ceremonies and little league games. And, you know, is it my turn to pack the snacks this week? You know, just thinking about that just wears me out. Happy Mother's Day. You deserve it. I hope somebody is making dinner for you and you're getting a massage later on. I mean, but you know exactly what we're talking about. We've all experienced this level of exhaustion. That's what John is saying of Jesus, that he, in his humanity, experienced real human exhaustion. He truly was limited in his humanity. He was really a man. And he was wearied and needed to rest. Jesus had real human limitations. And the thing that this, we need to realize is this is, this is the picture that, that's painted throughout the Gospels if you actually pay attention to the details. Jesus, fully God, took on a full human nature and he had the limitations like we do and he was wearied to the point of exhaustion, which means he needed to rest. That's why the Bible tells us that he slept. In Mark chapter 4, we read the story about how Jesus calmed the storm and, and, how, and in that story we read, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was already filled but but when but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing now people will point to this and say well Jesus was so confident in in God that he was sleeping and that's true but you know why he was sleeping because he was tired he was on the go all the time in ministry, doing things for people all the time. He was tired. He needed to sleep. He needed to rest just like all of us. You don't think that you need to sleep? Try going on limited sleep for a little while. You'll find that your life quality begins to diminish really fast. Not only that, Jesus also needed to eat. Right In the, in the, in the wilderness, what was one of the important temptations that he faced? He fasted for 40 days. He went 40 days without food. By the way, 
that's a serious length of time. In fact, when people decide they want to start fasting, doctors say, don't ever try to do a 40-day fast just right out the gate. That You need to train your body for that because you can actually physically do irreparable harm to your body by not eating. Right? Jesus went 40 days without food. That's why it was a real temptation when Satan said, turn that rock into bread. And over and over again, the Bible talks about how Jesus was with people, breaking bread, eating meals, having dinner with people. Jesus needed nutrition. He needed calories. He needed protein. Yes, he even needed carbohydrates. He, like us, had to eat, and he also thirsted. That's why he stopped at the well. He needed a drink of water. After walking all day long, he was thirsty. There was not little convenience stores everywhere where you can buy you know, a two-liter bottle of water. So he asked the woman to get him a drink, not to mention when he was on the cross being dehydrated from the loss of blood. What did he say? I thirst. Jesus had real physical needs like us. He was impacted by his humanity. And, and even more, he experienced real physical pain. His torture and torment on the day that he was crucified was a real torment. It was real, physical, horrific pain. He suffered every bit as much as we could suffer in the same circumstance. His pain was as real as any pain you have ever experienced in your life. You see, this is not a sham. God was not pretending to be someone suffering. He actually was suffering. Not only did he feel, experience physical pain, but he also experienced emotional pain. The Old Testament says of him that he was a man of sorrows. In the New Testament, we discovered that he experienced grief. In the shortest verse in the entire Bible, we're told that Jesus wept. And when you read the story and understand the context, what you realize is it wasn't a couple of little tears that he shed, that he was so emotionally distraught at the pain of his of his beloved friends, that he was hyperventilating. He was in emotional anguish. Not to mention that Jesus experienced disappointment and he experienced anger. We always, when we paint pictures of Jesus, we always think about Jesus meek and mild. We forget about the times that his anger welled up in him. The times when he would kick people out of the temple with a whip. Right? Jesus also experienced deep dread. Jesus in the garden prayed to God the Father, let this cup pass. Please find another way. If there's another way and by your will, then we don't have to do it this way, then let's not do it this way. Why? Because in his humanity, he was about to experience on the cross the full weight of the wrath of God. Jesus knew emotional pain. The fact is Jesus experienced what it was like to be fully and truly human. And the scriptures tell us that he, that he was tried in every way, right, but was without sin. Jesus in his humanity was just like us, except no sin. Now, what does that mean? What that means is he really knows you. He knows who you are. Who are the people that know you the best? Seriously, who are the people that know you the best in your life? Those are the people that have been with you through those trials and tribulations and those difficult times in your life. Jesus knows you. He can truly sympathize with you. He understands you and what you're going through. He knows how you feel. John Brown once wrote, the Son of God, had he never become incarnate, might have pitied, but he could never have sympathized with his people. To render him capable of sympathy, it was necessary that he should become man, that he might be susceptible to suffering, and that he, might, that, that he should actually be a sufferer, that he might be susceptible to sympathy. Jesus knows all about what you're dealing with. He knows about what you're going through physically and emotionally. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by your best friends. Jesus knows what it's like to be left behind. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be completely tired and wore out. 
Sometimes we get kind of caught up and think that nobody understands us. I'm telling you right now, He knows everything that there is to know about you, and He knows what it's like for you. And because of that, when Jesus, when we come to Him, when you come to Christ, you're not coming to this faceless deity who can't identify with you and you can't identify with Him. You come to the person of Christ who knows exactly what you're feeling and exactly what it is that you've experienced. That's why Peter says and, and he exhorts us, cast all of your cares, your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you because He knows you. He knows you because He walked in your shoes and He suffered with you and He suffered for you. You see, you don't have a God that's far away and distant and, and is apathetic to, to your plight. You have a God that has come near to you. As we sang this morning, Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. I can't even push those words out of my body without tears well up in my eyes. That's what he did. He came to be near us. He came to be with us. And he tore down the barrier between God and man so that we can be reconciled to God. But not only that, Jesus also, as a man, tore down the walls that separate people too. I want you to notice what John writes here. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The thing that we need to keep in mind is that Jesus was not only a Jew, but he was a rabbi, which means he was well-respected and a man of good standing in the community. And, and even those people who didn't like him still had to respect him and call him rabbi and teacher. And culturally, there was this expectation on him with respect to how he dealt with people. There was expectations in how he behaved and interacted with other people. And, and the first thing we need to realize is, is Jews did not have personal dealings with Samaritans. They weren't friends. John even said that himself, for the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. To the Jews, the Samaritans were considered second-class citizens. They were even worse to them than the Greeks. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And this hatred between these groups started centuries before. After Solomon had died and the kingdom of Israel became divided, it was divided in the northern kingdom, which, is, which was called Israel, and then the southern kingdom was called Judah. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem, and the capital of the northern kingdom became Samaria. And, and over the years, bad blood began to develop between these kingdoms. They, were, they continually were in conflict with one another. Right? They hated one another. In fact, it'd be worthwhile to actually read First and Second Kings and, and First and Second Chronicles to kind of get a, an idea of that history and how that developed. They hated each other politically, and to make matters worse, Israel was quick to abandon the worship of the one true God, and they turned to idolatry and rejected Jerusalem as the city of the king, and they rejected coming to, to the temple in Jerusalem for worship. That's, in fact, that's what the woman points to. She says, our fathers said we worship on that mountain, but you say we, you have to worship in, in Jerusalem. For the Jews, this was... This was heresy. For the Jews, this was worse than the political intrigue. And even worse, the Samaritans laid claim to the same heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews hated that. And if this political and religious conflict wasn't enough to, 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 to cause a rift, the racism certainly was. You see, when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian army, many of the people were deported, but those that were left became collaborators with the Assyrians, and many of them intermarried with the Assyrians. And for the Jews, this was a big taboo. This was a big no-no. They despised interracial marriage. And so they saw these Samaritans as less than people. They saw them as half-breeds. 
And so the hatred between these groups was, was racial. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they were Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews because they were Jews. It was that simple. In fact, the hatred that was experienced there was worse than the racism in our own country, as bad as it is. I want you to understand me, right? The wrong of racism in our country is a horrible stain and one that we ought to continually repent of over and over again. And, and this racism still exists between groups. And it's not unique to just one group. It's un- there are racists of every color and every nationality. And to make it worse, there are people who foster this and who profit from this, who try to get people to hate one another more and more. That's why the media, by the way, fosters this. But understand, this is not a new issue, right? Racism and hatred wasn't invented by America. This is as old as mankind. And during the time of Christ, the hatred between the pure Jews and the half-breed Samaritans was was very, very horrific. But then what we have here is is, is Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, reaches out in grace to talk to a Samaritan woman. And then there's a second issue. The second issue is of propriety. The thing we need to understand is Jewish men in that culture didn't publicly talk to women they didn't know or weren't related to. It was considered inappropriate, to to say the least. Not to mention, right, women were considered at that time to be second-class citizens. They were considered to be property in par with livestock, and they were were seen as having very little value. This, by the way, is, is why we remind people continually that it was Christ and the church that really brought to the world the understanding that women and men are created equal. And so this was scandalous that Jesus would have a conversation with this woman that he didn't know, much less a Samaritan woman. But then there's the third issue. And the third issue is of her immorality. This woman was considered a notorious sinner. Notice that Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman had five different husbands, and she was now with another man that she was intimate with that wasn't her husband. Now today in in our culture, this doesn't seem too extreme, though maybe 50 years ago it would have been. But in the first century, this was, again, scandalous. In fact, she was about as honorable in her own community as a prostitute. In fact, her people didn't even accept her. I don't know if you realize that. When you look at the details, notice John says that it was the sixth hour when this happens. The thing that we need to realize is the sixth hour means it was noon when she was going to draw water from the well. And the reason why that's important is because this woman was going to draw water from the well when there was nobody else there. You see, the women of that community usually went to draw water first thing in the morning. It was a community event. They all went to draw water for the day for their families, and it was they did it so as a community. But this woman was not welcomed by the people in her own community to even do something as simple as get water for her family because of her immorality. She was seen as dirty and vile, and her own people despised her, which was even more reason for Jesus to have scorned her and looked down on her and ignore her. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? Instead, he goes and he talks to her, and out of love, he treats her like a person with value, and he shares with her the hope of the gospel. And this is important for us to see. Jesus tore down the barriers that separate people even still today. The barrier of race and the barrier of sex and the barrier of sin. The very things that still get in the way of people. The very things that even Christians still struggle to overcome in their own lives. Jesus, by his own action, removed the barriers so that he could love her and see in her, see in her the image of God that she was created with. 
And the thing that we need to understand is this is not unusual for Jesus. Jesus made a point to be friends with sinners. That's why the religious, the hyper-religious Pharisees didn't like him. Right? Something that the Jews hated him for. He even made a point to love the Gentiles, and he even went so far and loved and was gracious to those that were considered to be untouchable, like the lepers. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 40, we read, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. The thing that we need to realize is it was illegal according to the man-made law that this man would even come close to Jesus. He was required to shout, unclean, unclean. He was required to put people on notice that he had leprosy so they wouldn't come near him. And it was illegal to knowingly touch someone with leprosy because it was so contagious. But Jesus didn't let that stop him. He loved those people too, even the icky ones. Jesus tore down the walls between people and the things that separate us as humans. Jesus reconciled God to man, but he reconciled man to man. He reconciled us together. Paul says in Ephesians, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus tore down the dividing wall between us. And as such, he serves as an example for us. The truth is, this is the place right here. This is the place where we need to be more like Jesus. You want to know how you can be more like Jesus? This right here, this is it. This is the place. We need to be able to tear down the man-made barriers and our comfort zone barriers that, barriers that get in the way so we can see the image of God in those people that are around us. Right? That way we can love them and share the hope of Christ with them. We need to draw near to other people and be gracious and loving and patient and merciful with other people regardless of their race, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their current or former addictions. We need to be able to love people even when they come from families that we don't like. This is boring. You know what I'm talking about, right? Even when they come from families that have hurt us in the past. People in Boron can hold grudges longer than anybody I've ever seen in my life, by the way. We need to be able to love people even when there's a history. We need to be able to love people even when we know the sins they've been engaged in and the stupid things that they've done in their lives. One of the benefits of living in Boron is people know you. One of the downsides of living in Boron is people know you. The truth is we need to be willing to meet people where they are, as they are, and be gracious to them, just as Christ was. We need to be willing to be a bridge that, that, that spans their hearts and ours so that Christ can cross to them. We need to be able to tear down the ways that separate us so that we can love people. Now, I'm not saying that you need to put yourself in danger. Okay, I want to be really, really clear. There are circumstances where it's important where you meet strangers that you maintain physical barriers and, and that you love them from a little bit of a distance because you're wise and don't get manipulated, manipulated. But we all know that there are those times where there are people around us that we do know or maybe we're getting to know that there's something about them that puts us off that we struggle to love them through. We need to love them enough to be able to share the hope of Christ with them. We need to tear down the barriers. But we also need to love them enough to tell them the truth. As a man, Jesus proclaimed the truth of the gospel in love to this woman. I don't know if you noticed that. And, and this includes confronting her in her sin. Jesus said, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now Jesus, out of his love, was offering her 
this woman, the water of life. He was offering her the gospel. He was offering her a way to be saved. But nevertheless, he still confronts her directly about her sin, the sin that she was living in. And notice he doesn't mince his words. He doesn't soften the blow. He doesn't kind of beat around the bush. He tells her exactly what the issue is. Woman, you've been with a lot of men and you're still living in sin right now. Now this is a lesson for us because today in our culture, confronting people about sin, it is not something that's comfortable or that we like to do. We don't want to call sin what it is. In fact, we want to we minimize it to make it seem less than it is. Or, or we want to use words like mistake or lapse of judgment or even the word failure. Because we like the word failure more than we like the word sin. Because the word sin seems so harsh. And we struggle to call sin what by its name. And we tend to make, make excuses for it, you know. I mean, well, you know, things happen or... Well, you know, circumstances being what they are, well you, well, you can't blame them. I mean, that's just kind of part of their personality. We want to excuse sin as if, there, if, if there's ever been a real good reason to be in rebellion against God. The truth is we often soften the blow and, and we don't want to upset people. That's a natural response. And so what we do is we pre-qualify our words with respect to sin, even to the point that we sound like the rest of the world rather than what the Word of God sounds like when we talk about these things. And all this stems from the fact that we have been conditioned to be afraid to offend somebody with the truth. We, we are afraid that people will get their feelings hurt. And even worse, we don't want people to think that we're not nice. Because that's what seems to be the most important characteristic to the world around us is that Christians are supposed to be nice. In fact, the moment that you say anything that people don't like, what are the words that you hear? <laughs> well, that's not very Christian-like of you. How many of you have ever heard that before? Come on, yeah. And what's worse is that's effective. What's worse is that it actually impacts us and causes us to backpedal and change our approach. Christians hate it when you say that to them. To the point that we will do everything in our power to be seen as nice. But let me just tell you right now, there are ten commandments in the Old Testament and not one of them says, thou shalt be nice. Not one of them says, thou shalt never offend. Not one of them says, thou shalt be thought of well by the world. Now understand me, okay? Because there are people that go way the opposite, right? I am never, ever an advocate for being a jerk. Because Christians can do that too. I'm never an advocate for being hateful because people have done that in the name of Christ. We have never had the cause to be abusive or hateful or just mean for no reason. Right? But we must not, never allow the you are not a very nice Christian card to prevent us from speaking the truth to people in love. Because Jesus didn't. Notice Jesus was not mean and he was not hateful and he wasn't a jerk, but he still told her the unvarnished truth. We must never shy away from telling the truth in love because loving someone doesn't mean that we have to ignore their sin. Loving someone doesn't mean that we have to be in agreement with the choices that they make. Loving someone doesn't mean that we have to participate in their distinct desire not to acknowledge reality. Even if it makes them feel better. Loving someone is having the courage to speak the truth in love, even when it's hard, even if it causes pain, even if it causes backlash, even if it causes our persecution. The fact was that Jesus was for the truth that he was crucified. Because Jesus loved us, and he loved the world enough to tell the truth that they put him to death. And so we ought to love others enough to tell the truth. Jesus identifies with us. He tears down the barrier between us and others. 
Jesus helps us to see that we need to tell the truth. And Jesus, as a man, came into the world to be the Messiah or the Christ. In fact, this is, this is what the word Christ means. It means Messiah, the anointed one. Every time you say, the, say Jesus Christ, what you're saying is Jesus Messiah. And, and notice what John writes here. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus answers all the questions about who he is right here. He declares emphatically that he is the one that everybody has been waiting on. He is emphatically the Messiah. I heard somebody preach one time and said, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. You missed John chapter 4 then, because he said it really, really clear. You see, for those who were saved in the Old Testament before Christ came, they were saved on the same basis by which we are saved, by faith in the Christ, faith in the Messiah. The only difference is, is we look back in faith. They looked forward by faith. They were waiting and entrusting in God for the one who would come and one day set all things right. They were looking for the promised one, the Messiah, the promised one who, who was promised actually all the way back to the beginning. You see, there was the promise of Christ was all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, singular. And he, specifically, he shall bruise your head. He will crush your skull, in other words, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus, I mean, excuse me, just after man fell into sin, just after man rebelled against God's command, just after making mankind earning the awful and terrible wrath of God, God promises a way to be redeemed. He promised the Redeemer to come the one who would crush the head of our enemy and, and, and undo the curse that enslaved us. This, what was, what's called is the proto-evangelium, or the, the first promise of the gospel. And from the beginning, the faithful were looking forward to him. And throughout history of God's people, God continually pointed forward to him. God would remind them of this promise, and he gave them symbols symbols of who he is and what he would do. The temple, by the way, I don't know if you realize, and the entire Levitical system and the whole sacrificial system, all of it were pointing forward to this person, the Christ, the Messiah. And by the first century, everybody was looking for him. Everybody was excited for him to come. Even the Samaritans were waiting for the coming Messiah. That's why we see her words. And now Jesus declares in no uncertain terms, He's the one. He is the anointed one. He is the one that came, would come in the world to be the king and the ruler over all things. And that's why even now we sing the song, Jesus, Messiah. Every time you say Christ, you're saying Messiah. And that is the truth that we declare even now. Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting on. He is the man who came into the world to undo what Satan did. He is the one who would come and make all things right. He is the one who came in his humanity to uphold the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep. And he is the one who fulfilled the law that we all break. And he's the one who came into the world to earn a righteous standing before God that all of us are required to have but can't earn. And he's the one who would come into the world to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who Jesus is, and that's what we, how we worship him. Jesus fully God, fully man. He knows us. He understands us. He tore down the barrier between us. He came to be our Messiah. But even more, he came to give us life. I want you to notice again what John writes here. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the water of life. I mean, excuse me, given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself 
as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst, be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Now, many people struggle when they, when they see this term and they want to know what Jesus means by the living water. I mean, we know that it has something to do with eternal life because Jesus connects it for us, but what is this living water? Well, the good news is the Bible explains itself. In John chapter 7, we find this, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet had, was not yet glorified. You see, the living water that Jesus promised is the Holy Spirit given to indwell us, giving us new life. The Holy Spirit who opens the door to our opens the eyes of our, to the gospel, all right. Christ is the one who gives us that spirit to come live inside of us, giving us life that never ends, the life of the spirit in us. By the way, this is what Paul's talking about. If you live by the spirit, Jesus is God and man as our Messiah is the fountain from which we receive the Holy Spirit, the living water. And He promises those who come to Him, He will give this living water the Holy Spirit to, and it will spring up in them to eternal life. As we sang this morning, Jesus said, if, if, if I should thirst, I should come to Him. Because He is the one who gives this living water. Which leads me to the last question. Are you thirsty? Have you Come to the fountain yourself. Have you made your way to the well? Have you received this living water? Have you been given the Spirit? Have you, been, have you received the gift of eternal life? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the righteousness of God? Are you thirsty to be forgiven? If so, then come to the water. Come to Christ now. Repent and believe the gospel and live. Jesus came to live for you and to identify with you and to know you and to die for you. He has done it all and now is holding out to you as a gift, the water of life. And all you need do is simply receive it by faith. Come to Christ. I urge you by faith, come and live. Repent and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? I'm glad you asked. It's the truth about the fact that God is the creator of all things. And he created you special in his image for a relationship with him. But that relationship has been irreparably destroyed because of your sin. And I don't have to convince you that you're a sinner. You already know it. You already know that there are things in your life that you have done that you're already ashamed of. And there are things in your life that you should have done that you didn't do that you know you should have done. Should, should, should have done. And that sometimes at night when you're laying in bed, you think about, I should have done that. And I really should have done that, but I didn't. Right? You already know that you have broken God's law. And because of that, then God's wrath abides on you. And one day you will stand and face Him and he will, he will judge you by your own actions, not by someone else's. And on that day, He will give you what you rightly deserve, which is His justice and wrath. And what's worse is you can't fix it by yourself. You can't be nice enough or religious enough or loving enough or caring enough or, or do enough stuff to make... The, the, the scales balance out, out in your favor. You can't do it. It's impossible. The bad news is you're helpless and hopeless on your own. But the good news is God in His grace 
God in His mercy made a way for you to be redeemed and to be saved. He did it all for you. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came into the world to live the perfect life that you couldn't live, and then He died on the cross, shedding His blood for you, making atonement for your sins, all of them, past, present, and future. He died in your place. He took the wrath of God that you rightly deserve. He paid your penalty. And then He was buried in the tomb. But three days later, He was risen from the grave, proving that He is what He claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that He can do what He promised to do. And what did He promise to do? That He can save you from your sins. His resurrection proves that our enemy has been crushed, that sin and death have no dominion over us anymore, and we have nothing to fear. And all of that is yours if you will just get really religious and work really hard. No, it's not the gospel, right? It's all available to you if you will turn to Christ by faith, as Paul says. That if you will put your faith and hope in Christ alone, if you will call upon His name, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is my call to you, is to repent and believe the gospel. Now, if you have questions about that or you're not sure how that works, come talk to me. Come talk to uh, Pastor Hugh. You can talk to Brother Tom. You can talk to Brother Terry. You can talk to Brother Creston. You can talk about just about most of the people who've been here for a, a while. Now, for those of you who are in Christ, let us learn from Him and be sympathetic to those around us. And let us be willing to tear down the barriers that separate us, even when the world tells us you shouldn't be near them or with them. And let us tell people the truth and love. And let us always be pointing people to the one hope that we all have, the hope that, that, that the world needs so desperately to hear about. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.